Welcome to Boat Talk on Community Radio, WERU-FM, Blue Hill, and WERU.org. Boat Talk used to be a call-in boating show, but for now, this is another pre-recorded Boat Talk, so we're not able to take calls. I've been able to make calls, however, and I spoke with an artist who is doing a project for the Main Island Trail Association known as MIDA. We have spoken about the trail often on Boat Talk, and I'd like to say that the Main Island Trail is like a, a pirate map where every stop is a treasure. Anyway, the artist is Matthew Russ, and he has found a way to combine boating, the island trail, and painting into a memorable and beneficial summer. Here's Matt Russ. Well, to, to begin with, uh, Alan, thank you for your interest in the story and the project. And um, I, oh, and the art. <laughs> yes, thank you. I know you're interested in boats, but I, I, I understand you're interested in art too. Uh, and uh, also, I'll, I'll just mention that um, I love WERU. Um, my family has a camp on um, Cape Rozier, and whenever we're there, we tune in. And uh, I have heard your show on occasion, just randomly, whatever happens to be on the radio, would switch on. Um, so it's just a, a real pleasure to be to be part of this uh, this program. So thank you. So Alan, uh, the Maine Island Trail Association um, is a nonprofit nonprofit organization that was founded, I believe, in 1988, um, that uh, its mission to provide access to Maine Islands all the way up the coast from the western border of um, New Hampshire all the way to the eastern border, um, Cobscook Bay, and to provide access for recreational boaters. Um, its most popular I would say with with sea kayakers, although um, sailors, motor boaters, boaters of all types um, are welcome to to use the trail. And what's remarkable about it, uh, in my mind, is that uh, Maine Island Trail Association does not own any of the islands uh, themselves. All the islands are owned by either private landowners, uh, owned by the state. Um, owned by local conservation groups or larger Maine conservation groups. But what Maine Island Trail Association does is to tie all of those different types of uh, islands together into one coherent trail that adventurers, in theory, could follow all the way up the coast. And um, a lot of the agreements that have been made with the various landowners um, are quite old fashioned. They're handshake agreements in many cases, but it allows someone like me who is interested in island exploring to, to know that there are certain islands all the way up in the coast that are, that are accessible. Um, many of them have 
campsites on them so that if you were um, engaged in a longer journey, you could you could camp and stay along the way. Um, the trail consists of well over 200 largely uh, wild islands along the coast. Um, there are a few mainland sites as well that allow boaters to have have some points on land where they could could stay. Um, and uh, on top of all of that, the Maine Island Trail Association um, has a very large uh, membership and volunteer base so that uh, if we were not living in a pandemic, <laughs> for instance, this summer, um, there would be large numbers of Maine Island Trail Association members and volunteers uh, fanning out across the state um, helping clear trash off the various islands, uh, maintain the campsites, and, and generally just keep a, um, an eye on the islands and, and, uh, and engage in thoughtful stewardship. And I think that the overarching theory of the, of the association is that once you start to learn more and more about the islands and, and have actual access to the islands, you, you, you learn what a remarkable remarkable resource these islands are and once you learn about it you you almost naturally become somebody who wants to actively become in, involved in stewardship and volunteerism and so forth um, mm. uh, main island trail association often goes by its acronym mita or mita so from here on out i'll just <laughs> use the term mita um, when describing the organization but um, I think it's just an amazing, an, an amazing group of people. Um, the full-time staff for MITA is based in Portland, um, but again, um, there's a very large and, and very enthusiastic and passionate group of um, MITA members and, and, and volunteers and so on. Uh, and um, through the project that I've been involved in, I've learned more and more about MITA. And, the more I learn, the more I love <laughs> about this group and what and what they do. So, uh, tell us about your project. the The official title of um, the project, Alan, is is Project Twenty Twenty, and the subtitle is an artist's journey on the Main Island Trail. And I'd be happy to describe the uh, the project to you. There are two. Um, really two key websites uh, for anybody who is interested in learning about Project 2020. Um, one, as you say, is, is the Portland Art Gallery website, which is portlandartgallery.com. The other website um, that's a helpful tool is, is uh, the Maine Island Trail Association website, which is mita.org. And in either of those places, you will have access to um, information about Project 2020. So, um, Alan, in the year 2020, which we're <laughs> smack dab in the middle of, and, and what a year it's been, um, I am visiting 20 of the islands along the main island trail. And for each island visit, I am doing an original oil painting on site, um, each of which has the dimensions 20 inches by 20 inches. So. Um, Project 2020 has multiple meanings. Of course, it's the year 2020, but 
but that framework of the 20 by 20 paintings is, is another um, sort of uh, parameter of, of the project as, as it was conceived. And the main island trail, just for um, purposes of organizing um, the layout of the trail, um, the main island trail is divided into to, um, 10 distinct zones going up the entire coast uh, from west to east. Um, and I'll just name the zones. Um, it begins in the southern coast, so think southern Maine, south of Portland. Um, the next zone is Casco Bay, Portland area, of course. Um, zone number three is known as the Western Rivers. Um, think the Sheepscot River and uh, Merry Meeting Bay, the Androscoggin, um, the Kennebec, of course, Damariscotta River. Um, and then the next zone after that is Muscungus Bay. Following Muscungus is Penobscot Bay. Um, the next zone along the trail is Deer Isle. So that whole Deer Isle region, Merchants Row, all those lovely islands um, in that part of the coast. Um, MDI is the next region. So uh, Bar Harbor, Acadia, of course, um, so much beauty in that part of Maine. Um, Down East is next. Um, and then that goes all the way up to the Machias area. Um, the second to last zone on the main island trail is, is the Bold Coast. So think Cutler and all those big steep cliffs that <laughs> you've seen if you've been to that part of, of Maine. And then the trail concludes in Cobbscook Bay, um, again, right on the Canadian border. And so for, for me, um, in regards to Project 2020, I decided it would be the easiest to choose two island sites from each of the 10 zones, and that would allow me to achieve my, my goal of painting 20 islands throughout this, uh, throughout this uh, boating season. Um, I'm almost finished. <laughs> um, I just finished the Down East region. Um, I got back from a trip just last night, and I'd, I'd be happy to talk more about the specific trips. But um, after that, uh, Bold Coast and Cobbscook Bay, um, the 20 paintings will be complete. And um, I should mention, Alan, that that uh, this is also uh, not only meant to, to draw attention to Maine Island Trail Association, but uh, it's my hope to also raise some funds for the Maine Island Trail Association. Um, so these paintings are for sale. They are uh, for sale through the Portland Art Gallery. Um, and um, a substantial portion of the proceeds will go directly to MIDA. And so this is also my way of, of um, contributing to an organization that I, that I care so much about. How, how do you go about doing this? Decided just to keep myself on task um, to, to do two island visits per zone. And uh, what I quickly learned as you know, we this project um, tr transition from <laughs> the brainstorming and the idea phase to the actual implementation is that uh, there are just so many islands to choose from along the main coast. And, <laughs> and, and in each zone, there are so many gems um, that it's, it's truly an embarrassment of riches. Um, 
and I have relied heavily on uh, MITA and it's the larger MITA community um, to help me narrow down my choices as to which islands might be of interest. Um, frankly, as, a, as an artist, Alan, you could set me on any island on the main coast and I would find something um, interesting and beautiful to explore. But, um, but also MITA has a, a, a real um, understanding, of course, of the, the logistics of getting to each of the islands and what it entails. And, and um, the staff and the larger MITA community have been exceptionally helpful in um, helping me choose islands that are realistic to get to within the time frame that that we have and and um, and how to most efficiently use my time while I'm out on the islands so that's been a, a real education for me along along the way but but yes choosing just two islands from each of those 10 zones has been <laughs> one of the perhaps one of the most challenging parts of the project for me um, I could go back next year and do it all again and do 20 other islands and it would be a completely different story but um but that's that's part of the fun of it as well and what kind of boats do you use well it's been a, it's been a real mix and and i i know this this uh, radio show is 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 boat talk so there <laughs> there have been plenty of boats involved um i will say that at the very start of the the journey um it was a, an interesting time. It, we were still pretty new into the whole COVID experience. Um, my first outing of the entire journey was on April 29th. So if you think back to um, COVID-19 coming on the scene in full strength mid-March, um, we were still very much living in a <laughs> what felt like a quarantine scenario. So. Uh, the the first two um, stops along the way, so to speak, on this journey were were land based. There were no boats involved at all. I I simply uh, drove down to the southern coast area and found islands that I could see from the mainland. Um, the first of which is uh, Cape Island, which is owned by the Kennebunkport Conservation Trust down off of Cape Porpoise. If you're familiar with that area. Um, and then the second island I did again from the mainland vantage point was um, Timber Island on May 4th. And that was, um, that island is owned by the Rachel Carson uh, National Wildlife Refuge. Beautiful, beautiful piece of property, both on the mainland side and the island itself. Um, so those were, those were land-based operations, but the, the, the goal all along was very much for this to be about um getting to the islands by boat it's it's what um it's what mita is all about so fortunately by the time i arrived in the casco bay zone um we were really getting more into the the boating season proper and um my first seaborne mission was in casco bay uh to an island called bangs island which is owned by the bureau of uh, main bureau of parks and lands and um in that case it was a mita uh, staffer, um, a fellow named Jack Phillips, who's the director of advancement for MITA. Um, he took me out on his private boat, which was a beautiful little Boston whaler. Um, and Jack had a lot of local knowledge <clears throat> in that area. And we zipped out from the South Portland boat launch and um, had a lovely day out on Bangs Island. And so 
for me, that felt like a, a real great milestone in that we were finally getting out on boats and, and, um, and having seaborne adventures. And so most of the island visits since that time, um, I think with one exception, have been, um, have been seaborne missions. Um, the next mission, for instance, um, which was in Upper Casco Bay on June 8th to a small island called Raspberry Island. Um, that's sort of near the Harpswell area. Um, that was also um, skippered by a, a, a MIDA staffer, a fellow named Jordy St. John, um, who lives in West Bath. Um, he's director of business engagement for MIDA, but uh, he also has a a private boat in that area and, and we left from um, his home um, on the New Meadows River aboard a, a Grady White. So um, Jordy had a lot of local knowledge in that area. In fact, Jordy has his own oyster farm um, that he operates, um, I would say single-handedly, but he also gets his family involved. <laughs> uh, they're called uh, Merritt island oysters and so you know as as a guy who has has uh, an oyster farm in the area he's he's very much aware of of the the local environment and so it was great to have his local knowledge and, and boat um to get out to to raspberry island and um i'm somebody who just loves all kinds of boats and so all along the way to have have these these different experiences and and uh, different types of watercraft has been has been a large part of the adventure. Um, I will admit that I'm I myself am not a sea kayaker. Um, my wife is a very uh, experienced and excellent sea kayaker, but for whatever reason, I've never been comfortable sitting in a sea kayak. I love canoeing, and I love uh, almost every other type of craft, and I respect the kayak, but it, we don't <laughs> we don't personally get along. So. Um, that's the one type of craft uh, so far I haven't yet um, um, done a done a project stop uh, with. Do you have any uh, special memorable moments? But one of one of the most meaningful um, missions so far, Alan, along the way, um, has been um, in the in the Penobscot Bay uh, zone, and. During that phase of the trip, um, my my father got involved in helping out. Um, I think I mentioned earlier in our conversation that my folks have a, a small camp on on Cape Rozier, which is in Brooksville, Maine, um, Penobscot Bay, right around the corner from Castine, um, and uh, they also have um, a beautiful old boat uh, called Maddie B, and she is a 28-foot wooden cabin cruiser that was built um, by Hodgson Brothers and Gowdy and Stevens uh, in 1956 in East Booth Bay. And that boat used to belong to my grandparents, uh, Bob and Maddie Russ, and the boat is named after my, my, my grandmother, my nana, uh, Madeline Bunker Russ. And so Maddie B is a boat that um, I grew up cruising on when I was just a little guy, um, largely around the islands of Penobscot Bay. And um, 
my grandparents who have since passed away, um, they owned and maintained Maddie B into their 80s, which is no small feat <laughs> if you know anything about wooden boats, which I'm sure you do. Um, and then it was one of the sad chapters of, of my life when my, my grandparents sold the boat and we lost track of her for years. And, and it wasn't until um, years later when, when my parents who uh, lived in Cape Elizabeth, which is where I grew up, um, moved up into the mid-coast region, um, Walpole specifically. Uh, my brother also lives in the Damascata. Um, that we found Maddie B on a mooring um, under another name. She was she had been renamed uh, True One, and as soon as we <laughs> knew that she was indeed the Maddie B. Um, uh, my father, being the, the kind of guy he is, had to had to know who owned owned the boat and found the guy and introduced himself and said, "Gosh, if you if you were to ever think of selling the boat, um, we'd be interested." And so, uh, incredibly, um, the boat um, was up for sale, and my folks bought her, and and she's uh, she's Maddie B again, and um, spends time between uh, the Damariscotta River where my where my folks live and um, and a mooring up on Penobscot Bay just just off of um, just off of Cape Rozier so we were able to to take um, uh, one of the project 2020 missions aboard Maddie B um, to Butter Island which is on the main island trail and and it was just this incredible full circle experience for me and and for my dad and and uh, for my whole family so and then um two childhood friends of mine and and i um soon after that took another mission aboard maddie b to um to the deer isle region and that was uh, that was also um, personally very gratifying um my grandparents used to love to cruise in that area um merchants row and um so you know that that particular mission, although it involved more logistics um, on my end, was was just so so personally um, um, and special and meaningful to me. Because of this project, I've actually spent more time um, out on boats on a regular basis than I usually would on any given summer, and and I've I've just. I've just enjoyed every every minute of it. It's been very special indeed. Are you um, seeing more or less boat traffic when you're out there? I would say more, Alan. Um, and I've asked that same question of other people, uh, particularly um, the folks at MITA who are always interested in knowing what sort of activity the various islands are receiving. Um, ironically, this season, um, MIDA has not been using their usual logbook methods. Usually on each of the main island trail islands, there's a physical logbook that people who visit can um, sign in to and, and talk about when they were there, what they saw, how many boats were in the party, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But um, trying to maintain um, safety during the pandemic they scrapped the physical logbook um, approach there is a virtual logbook system they have 
in place, which I think is terrific, but I don't think as many people are actually using the, the digital logbook as, as would the, the physical log. Well, so everything that they've had to rely on this year has been largely anecdotal rather than those logbooks. But anecdotally, um, all the MITA folks I've spoken to who are out on the trail um, say that there seems to be an abundance of activity. And I certainly found that to be true. Um, certainly by the time I got up to the Penobscot Bay zone and so forth, we saw every imaginable type of craft, a lot of sea kayaks, of course, um, but a lot of sailboats, a lot of motorboats, um, a lot of <laughs> a lot of mega yachts, I gotta say. And I don't know if people are just riding out the pandemic on these large mega yachts, um, some of which have their own helicopter pads and so forth. But um, but no, it seems like it's been a busy busy season, and it, I, it's largely been a really nice summer as well. So I think that adds to it. Do you keep a written record also? This would also be a great time for me to talk about um, this terrific, terrific uh, online resource that um, that MITA has designed specifically to tell the story of Project 2020. Um, we're calling it a digital story map, but essentially it's a logbook that anybody who's interested enough to learn more about the project can actually follow my progress along um, the journey and this this online story map has a mix of photographs um, actual log entries that I've written about my visits um, there's an interactive chart feature where you can actually zoom in and see more detailed information about the different islands I've visited and it's also where you can see images of the uh, paintings as they are completed. Um, and that online story map can be accessed directly from MITA's website, which again is MITA.org. And um, while I'm mentioning that story map, I, I have to uh, thank by name um, Madison Morin, who is the communications manager at MITA. She has been my point person for this project and just a terrific, terrific person. And she um, took it upon herself how to learn um, to, to learn how to use this this technology and put together a really um, delightful um, online experience. So especially during this time in the pandemic, where people are looking for different ways to explore, um, I would highly recommend spending a little time on this on this online story map. So. That's a, a sort of the central place where you can get the, the, the big picture and, 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 and a lot of the details as well. Um, the paintings themselves are also um, neatly presented on the Portland Art Gallery website, which I mentioned before, portlandartgallery.com. And the paintings are directly for sale through the gallery. Um, they've done a lot of online business uh, since since the pandemic started so they're they're in good shape for that um, that being said the paintings themselves as they're completed are also going to the physical gallery space in portland and uh, for any of the listeners who haven't been to portland art gallery before it's really a beautiful space right in the middle of uh, the old port uh, on middle street in portland um, gorgeous uh, gallery space but also um, 
the gallery represents a, a, a wide range of um, of artists and styles, and it's been one of the joys of my life to be to be represented by Portland Art Gallery. Um, currently, Alan, I have uh, eight of the paintings um, on display in the gallery space. Um, but the when the project is complete, when I've made all 20 of my painting visits along the way, um, we will have a final exhibition of all 20 paintings that will open on October 21st. And um, for anybody who wants more information about that, uh, the closer we get to October, um, visiting either the, the MITA website or the Portland Art Gallery site will, um, will give more information. Um, and then one more important date I'd like to mention is coming up sooner. Uh, in fact, this coming th um, Thursday, September 10th, um, we will be airing an artist's talk um, in which I will discuss um, the ins and outs of Project 2020 um, and talk about the paintings uh, themselves. And um, that's this coming Thursday, September 10th from 4 to 5 p.m. That will be through the MITA website. And what's neat about that artist's talk, Alan, is that directly following, there will be the capability of a live question and answer period. So anybody who's interested in, in asking me quite specific questions about the journey so far, um, I'll be available to, to answer them. So many different ways to engage with the project, with the artwork, and, um, and with the mission as a whole. Your style is realistic and with a great sense of light but I especially like your clouds. Oh, oh, that's, that's wonderful. Um, I, <laughs> I'm a cloud guy too. And this is, I'm only laughing because uh, one of the, one of the Island visits I made along the way, uh, which was in the MDI region, um, the local um, monitor skipper, and that's the name that the MITA um, organization uses for their, their um, trained, um, skippers who take the uh, the boats of, of people out to the various islands during normal times. Um, the monitor skipper in that area, a terrific guy named Adam Wales, who took me to two different islands on the west side of MDI, um, he had a bumper sticker on his vehicle that said, I break for interesting cloud formations. And uh, as soon as I saw that, I knew I'd get along great with this. <laughs> okay, do you have anything else to add, Matt? Um, Alan, um, I'll only uh, add that I'm, I'm grateful to uh, have had the opportunity to talk with you, and, and, I, and uh, I think you have a terrific um, theme for your program, and, and um, now that we've spoken, I'll, I'll, I'll be a more loyal listener on a regular basis. <laughs> so I wish you luck, and, and, and thanks again for, for your, your interest in, uh, in Project 2020. That's Matt Russ, and you can see his work at mita.org, M-I-T-A dot O-R-G. Just click on the Project 2020 banner. Thanks, Matt. Next, John Johansson and Mike Joyce came over to my house a few days ago to chew the fat. Unfortunately, Mike's Mike was not working, so it's a, a one-sided conversation. Lobster boat racing season ended with the last race down in Portland. John begins by talking about that, and I asked if there were any YouTube videos of the races. And they go back. 
back into the 70s now. Somebody said there was one from the 70s up online. Yeah. I know somebody on Vinyl Haven who has a, a very good collection of tapes, and I'm sure it's VHS tapes, that he has amassed over the years of, you know, being a fan of, you know, racing. And I'd like to see if we could get him transcribed onto CD and put them up on a, on a website, say, at the Penobscot Marine Museum, because there's a lot of people that that's, they love to watch it. I mean, I haven't seen a lot from this year's racing. We had six races. We raced at Rockland, Bass Harbor. Then we went from Bass Harbor to Friendship. No, we went to Musabek, then to Friendship. Then we went to Winter Harbor, and then to Portland. We finished in Portland. And with the only problem we had in Portland was the harbor master and the coast guard were concerned because last year we actually, and it wasn't us, because we allowed the tugs to race on the same course, and the wake had actually put a boat on the dock. On the dock. So what we did is we sw switched the start line to the finish line. So we raced down towards Falmouth, and it was perfect. And we had 47 boats there. And the sad part was, and I don't know how many of you follow lobster boat racing, but one of the biggest characters in the racing circuit is Steve Johnson from Long Island. And we never know what Steve is going to do. We do know that he has an engine, which is a turbine from a helicopter, which has approximately 4,000 horsepower. And, but it didn't make it in the boat, but he was bringing a race engine over from the mainland to the island. And he told the boat operator, so we won't say who it was, uh, that he would get the crane to lift it up and bring it down. But they wanted to use the ramp. And he told them three times, let's get the crane. Well, no sooner that the kid said, I know what I'm doing, that the engine fell. And it was a, it was a 1,500 horsepower engine. Well, they don't come cheap. So they, the day before the race in Portland, they had a parade on Long Island Mourning the loss of an engine. <laughs> but, you know, it was, we had a good season. We didn't have any problems that I know of. The Coast Guard was really happy with what we did. We didn't have any big boat rafts ups, you know, because that was a concern. And there was really, at the most, five boats tied up. But there was good turnouts in all the races. I asked if Wild Wild West broke the 60-mile-an-hour barrier. Uh, no. Well... Let's put it this way. He did, but we don't have it on the official radar gun. But we know from the GPS on their cell phones they were doing over 63. 63. And Cameron looked at me, who's is Glenn's son, and goes, there's more. Right. And it's more accurate because of the... Pro well, the problem is, is that a lot of times they're at an angle. And if you're at an angle, the, the, the radar gun's bouncing. So you're going to lose two, three, four, five miles an hour, depending on the angle. Yeah. So a lot of them, what they do, you ready for this? They run right at the radar guy. Right at him. And, you know, and of course, some of the people on the boat get a little nervous. They just hope he turns. <laughs> You know, some of the things that were interesting in the lobster boat races, getting back to them, was the one the boat came out of uh, Wayne Beale's boat shop, which was a Wayne Beale 32 
which is hard chine. Now Wayne has had this boat on the market probably at least 15 years, if not more. He's only sold a handful of them, and they thought that if they brought it out and take, took it to the races, they'd get more orders. And being a 32, a lot of people are downsizing now, you know. Some of them are getting older, and they want a smaller boat that's got some size to it. So the 32 came out, and she made her first appearance at Winter Harbor and did very well. I'm not sure she was going to beat Right Stuff, which was uh, Dana uh, Beal's boat, but it was going to be a close race. Now at Portland, he was doing 45 miles an hour which is a really good speed for that boat. And the only one he couldn't beat was Blue-Eyed Girl, which is a Northern Bay 38 with a, I think it's a 900 horsepower Scanyana. Because Wayne Beal fishes, and so does an Andrew uh, Taylor, who, who owns Blue-Eyed Girl. Yeah, he was really trucking along. Oh, one thing that was really nice, there was a boat years ago that came to the lobster boat races called Crybaby. Now, Crybaby was built in Lewiston, Auburn, which the guys there call the boat building capital of the world. So, but they had built a beautiful little 25-footer by themselves. They're two shop, one's a shop teacher, one was a Latin teacher, but they needed something to do. So they put together a beautiful little boat, and it, they had gone around and looked at hulls and took all of the features they liked and made it into this hull. And it's hard to make a 25-footer look good when you put a cabin on it. But they were actually managed to do it. Well, they sold that first crybaby, and then they started to build another one. Well, I got a call in the middle of winter, and there was a problem. They're 80 years old, and they says, we can't do it anymore. And so we put it in the paper and offered it for sale, and they had 20000 into it. And you could buy it total for the twenty, or you could buy just the boat, which was sixteen. Well, I got a call about two weeks ago that the boat had sold. And surprisingly, it went to Brooklyn Boat Yard. It is going to be their new yard boat. And, you know, you talk about Brooklyn Boat Yard, go down there, and I think this month they're going to launch the Wheeler, the 38-foot Wheeler, which was an old pleasure boat from the 50s and 60s. They were very, very beautiful boats. They were a higher-end boat, you know, sort of like the old Chris Crafts. Now, this is one of the grandsons of the founders. They were all brothers that ran the Wheeler Corporation in New York. And uh, so he's built this boat. Uh, they've just launched a 50-foot Jim Taylor designed sailboat that probably made it to the Egamog and Reach Regatta. I made it, but my wife didn't want to helm the boat through the fleet. <laughs> she didn't feel comfortable, so we just kept going and headed through the Deer uh, uh, Isle thoroughfare. Uh, but, uh, and they've got another Taylor 44, I think, on the floor right now they're building. So the boat shops, surprisingly, are really busy. Even the, you know, the lobster boat builders, they've got, you know, a pretty good slug of boats. I was just with Stuart Workman at SW Boatworks, and he said he's booked to 22. The, but the problem is, is finding help. You know, all of these guys would take help, but they can't find them. Mike asked about Andy Gove. What he was really good at was his last boat, which was Uncle's UFO. It's a Northern Bay 36. It was powered with a 900 horsepower Mac, and it was finished off by Peter Buxton at Buxton Boats. Oh, yeah. And uh, that boat, and even Arno Day said this, when somebody figures out 
how to design the boat in between the Skag and the Down East boat, the semi-built down boat is what he called it. He said, that's where you're going to find some speed. And that boat does. And that Northern Bay 36 really does well. And he proved it because she would do over 50. But in, And he was a really nice man. He did a lot of things that a lot of people don't know. John travels around a lot to various boat shops, and we got into the subject of road food. Well, that's like Ossier's down in South Bristol. If you're ever in South Bristol, right as you go, before you go over the bridge on the left, and it's the freshest food you'll ever get because the boats are right behind you. And it is great. But you better have hunger because they fold it. And it, the last one I had was folded three times. How do you get your mouth around such a monster? Well, you stand on it. <laughs> that may be hard to swallow, but he does see some interesting things while on the road. Well, you know, I ran across an interesting boat, and it's sitting up in Hancock on the side of the road for sale. And it's called the Rebecca H., and it's got a pretty hull. It's a nice old wooden boat. But, you know, I was talking with Stuart Workman because he saw it too. And Stuart goes, that boat's got to have been in a barn. That could not have been in anybody's field and looked that good. The bottom is actually coppered. It's coppered. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, you know, of course, neither of us want to call and find out because <laughs> we may own it. And we don't want to do that. But I'd like to know who built that. Because it looks like the hull that I have, which is a Clinton Beale. It's sitting up in Hancock. You know where the guy does the chainsaw art? Just before him. Yeah, the used, the used boat lot. Yeah, there's one there, but behind her is this long, skinny lobster boat. It's a lobster boat hull, but it was finished off by the looks of it as a yacht because the house has sides on it, but the bottom is copper plates. We think it's been in a barn. And then down to Thomaston. But what really caught my eye was what was next to her. And if you go across the street from where the old prison is, they have a yacht there called Hindu, and it was built at Hodgton. It's a William Hand design. She's sort of like the size of Ladona, which was the big schooner that was rebuilt at uh, Lyman Morse maybe three years ago. And this is another project boat that they're going to do a total rebuild in that parking lot. Yeah, but they're going to build a cover over it. Yeah, but... You know, she she was built, I think, in 1920, the mid-20s, say. So, you know, and I think she's going to go back and run off of P-Town on the Cape. And I, the people there, I think, run day sails out of Provincetown, go out whale watching. And they use a, and use a sailboat. But that's going to be a big, big project. I went in one place and they were doing a total rebuild on a on a pleasure boat from the 1930s and I said what's going to be original on this boat and the reply was her name well it is thankful that there's guys out there that preserve these boats but what you worry about now is what happens to the boat after the, the guy who loved the boat for I don't know how many years you know 20 40 60 years when he has to give it up what happens to that boat is there anybody coming back, coming around that's going to have that same love? You know, look at Egamogan Reach. I mean, that's like a museum on the water. You know, those boats date back all the way to early 1900s. You know, is, are there people in this country that are going to be willing to pay to keep those boats going? 
Have you read any good books lately, John? And there's a good book that uh, Jay Revel Carr, who was the former director of Mystic Seaport, wrote about a actual voyage from around the Azores to the uh, uh, Caribbean. And that was kind of a horror story in a way, because it was during the war, and the Germans had sunk their vessel, and they played dead because basically everybody was being shot. And they got in a boat, there was five of them, three of them died, some by suicide, some just didn't make it, and two of them made it to shore, and one got on a vessel, and uh, he got to the United States, and then got on another vessel to go to England, and was torpedoed off England and drowned. But the other one, he must have had post-traumatic stress syndrome, because he was never right after that. And he finally committed suicide in the early 60s. But it's a great book. It's called All the Brave Sailors. Yeah, right now I'm reading the, a new book. Jeffrey Mattingly wrote a book on the Spanish Armada. And he was basically the resource if you wanted to know about the Spanish Armada. But I got a new book that came out within the last five years that really is kind of eye-opening about the whole thing. And it's pretty in-depth. goes all the way back to why the king of Spain was mad with England and why they wanted to go after him. <laughs> Matt Russ said that he's been seeing more boats on the water this summer. Have you? It's, it's been a sad time, of course, with the virus. But it's interesting to see the uptick in boat use. And I was at Damages Shipyard in uh, South Bristol, and they have been ordering 2,000 gallons of ga uh, gasoline on Friday. And by Sunday morning, it's all gone. And they never had that happen before. They say that there's a big upsurge all over the coast of people using boats. Now, some of them have already come back, because I heard from uh, a, a boat dealer in southern Maine that said, yep, I had my first one come back and goes, boating's not for me. But at least he tried it to see if he would like it. You know, and I don't know what turned him off. Or he could have realized that it's expensive. You know, I was coming out of friendship on my boat with my wife, and I asked her, I says, uh, you like the boat? And she goes, well, it's not practical. Well, my first thought in my head goes, well, you know, financially, no, it's not practical, you know? And she goes, nope, it's not big enough, it's not fast enough. So the poor woman's not retiring anytime soon. You know, so I went down and talked to Peter Cass. And it, amazingly, there's a few cast boats on the market, we talked about several boats, uh, most of them out of my price range, but there are some that, you know, are available. But most of them will get eaten up because it's interesting. Go out in a fiberglass boat and haul, and then go out in a wooden lobster boat and haul, and there's a vast difference. Clorox bottle, the Clorox bottle. And if, you know, the common saying around, you know, because I had somebody come into the booth when we were at the Maine Fisherman's Forum, and he was from University of Massachusetts, and he was doing a study on fishermen and injuries. And I had another fisherman there that fished out on Vinyl Haven in a glass boat. And we basically came up with the, with the saying that if you want to increase your fishing life 10 years, you fish out of a wooden boat. Mike asked about Willis Beal. No, Willis Beal's a beautiful boat. Now what you want from Willis is one of his models. He builds a model. It's about 36 inches. Now, he learned 
or probably got the idea from Alvin, who was a neighbor, probably also a relative. But Alvin built five-foot models of exactly how a lobster boat is built. So the floor timbers are in there, all the frames, and Willis is the same way. Now, you want to know how extreme Willis is? He cocks it. The planks are cocked and then bedded. But they're all cocked. It, it, everything inside is just like you would build. Like on the side of the uh, V-berth, you've got a slat that runs down. He puts that in. And it's all... And here's an interesting take on the state of the lobster fishery. Yeah, the Chinese overseas market's going to be a problem. But I was talking to an actual a lobster buyer, and he says, we don't really have to worry about this year because the Canadians can take and process what we will catch. The problem is, is that they're going to stick it in freezes, and if they can't unload it by next year, then you might have a glut on the market and there'd be a problem. Oh, yeah. You know, we finally started putting processing plants in this country, you know, and I don't know why we didn't do it. I don't know what was the reason. I mean, we've had processing plants on this coast before. Yep. There was some over on Vinyl Haven, and uh, there was some down east, but they just never seemed to work. Now, whether it was poor business management or, or what, I don't know. But. And that's it for John Johansson for this month. Mike also has some comments to throw in. We are trying to do Boat Talk, a radio call-in show, contemplating your naval issues about, uh, you know, uh, this, that, and, and others. Listen, splash, not as funny as click, clack. And, uh, but it's virus times, and we can't get into the studio and have no phone line feedback with a call-in radio audience. So um, we've got to think different ways to have a feedback loop with the audience. And uh, how about, at the very least, email? Try either BoatTalk at gmail.com or BarefootBoatTalk at Hotmail.com, okay? We'd love to hear, uh, you got a question, got a comment, uh, you know, some kinds of suggestions. Uh, you know, feedback loop essential to what we do for Boat Talk. And again, it's the most funnest part people. So, uh, again, uh, feedback loop, uh, try uh, boat talk at gmail or barefootboattalk at hotmail.com. So, about that. Now, like to talk about uh, the global warming, uh, you know, as much as possible. Uh, try to keep the narrative coming. And, uh, you know, the rap is that they're uh, predicting the end of the world uh, 10, 20 years away, and they always have been level. Well, it's going to be frozen before, and they don't know what they're talking about. They want you to, you know, uh, have power and uh, make you not be able to fly or uh, anything else. So, uh, But the fact is that it is happening right now. And if you look around, uh, California just recently on fire, the two hurricanes that come the uh, same time up the Gulf there and what Louisiana so bad unprecedented flooding in the Midwest at the same time. Um, six inches of rain in, in like two hours. Where's it got to go? Under your car. I'm sorry, you're gone. And uh, they had a uh, tour hurricane or a hurricane. I'm not sure what they called it in Iowa. Uh, 
early this month, um, 90 mile an hour sideways twister. And among other things, it knocked most of the corn down. And uh, sorry, gone. Uh, soybeans might come back, but they're plowing them a bunch into the ground anyway because of the China tariffs. So, uh, and let me think, uh, towards the East Coast, uh, that'd be something else too. But anyway, it ain't all good. So, um, it's happening now. People are refugees, and insurance companies are going to get tired of rebuilding, uh, you know, your house a couple of times after this. So, like I said, global warming is now. And again, uh, History may or may not be kind. Here's another related thing from the uh, Weekend Banger Daily News. National Science Foundation is going to give the University of Maine three million bucks to graduate research about the Arctic. The money's going to support science, technology, engineering, and mathematics programs that will help the university better train uh, graduate students in interdisciplinary fields of Arctic system science. Project expects to train, uh, you know, 57 graduate students, and the work will include research of environmental changes in the Arctic as well as Maine. So that's pretty good stuff. Had a uh, another, uh, like I say, uh, thing going on here just recently was a uh, Maine lobsman, Jason Joyce. He's from Swan's Island. He spoke at the Republican National Convention in favor of Donald Trump. And he highlighted the recent uh, Bangor Daily News uh, recent announcement. The Trump administration negotiated an agreement with the European Union to drop its 8% tariff on uh, lobsters and 20% tariff on frozen products for the next five years. Uh, and Joyce called it great news for Maine's lobster men and women. Uh, but still disagreement in the industry whether Trump's Impact on the fishery has been positive or not. Another fellow, uh, David Sullivan from the Maine Lobster Union, uh, points out that Trump's failed leadership on our industry has, uh, uh, in his trade war with China, has resulted on uh, lobster tariffs between 25 and 30 percent, has cratered what was one of their best markets. Last year, um, the uh, U.S., uh, mostly Maine, exported 12 million pounds to China and Next year it was two. So, uh, you know, not all good. And uh, he also uh, trumpeted now Jason Joyce, uh, Swan's Island uh, fisherman at the uh, Republican National Convention, that Trump has pledged to bail out to the fishermen uh, based on the bailout going to the farmers. And uh, it has been promised for August. It's not been delivered. It's now September. And uh, uh, people hope it'll be de- delivered in September. And uh, you know, uh, there we go. So, uh, again, other lobstermen not so sure that that's the way to look at that. They are uh, not unified on that. But, again, we could possibly talk to Jason Joyce if we like to. Uh, just saying. Now, here's another interesting uh, little item. The uh, They call it the voice of the Titanic. Mind you, when the Titanic uh, smucked her and went down, they had a Marconi wireless telegraph aboard, and it was just about brand new technology. And sent the uh, you know classic uh, disaster message, and uh, boat sank. Now, the machine itself, the uh, you know uh, we call it the ticker there, the uh, yeah, Marconi wireless machine, 
his uh, telegraph machine, is uh, still in a cabin, uh, sitting on a desk, but the uh, cabin is about to fall in, and it don't look good for the future of that thing. Some people are urging that um, go down and retrieve it right now. That would probably involve um, cutting up the wreck a little bit, or uh, at least uh, disturbing it uh, at the very least. There are people who are aghast at that, the Titanic Historical Society's it's a grave site. So, uh, on the other hand, the uh, public has an interest in, uh, you know, guarding the remains there. But uh, it'd be nice to see that little machine in a in a uh, museum somewhere. Now, wouldn't it? Interesting little uh, struggle over saving another piece of the Titanic. And can I add one more thing, please? Um, just recently, I was out in Belfast Harbor. I've uh, got a bum knee, had a hard time even getting in out of the dinghy and on the, uh, off of the uh, beautiful sailboat we was looking at, and uh, got into the dinghy. Uh, there was one life jacket in it. Nobody was wearing it, and uh, I uh, looked at myself and says, why didn't you bring your life vest? <laughs> and again, safety on the water. You know, you can swim better than you can fly, but uh, sometimes, especially uh, as the water gets colder, you don't want to be swimming anyway, and not uh, unless it's on purpose, and you got to plan on how to get out. So, um, again, uh, life jacket, cheap little trick, just saying, seatbelt, uh, face mask, all the same thing. There's Mike Joyce with some good advice, bringing Boat Talk back to the mooring for another month. We missed the recent WERU fundraiser, but it's never too late to support this community radio station that makes locally produced, informative radio programs like Boat Talk and many more possible. WERU has bills to pay in spite of the many volunteers, and your support is what keeps this station going. Please go to WERU.org and click on Donate to help keep this non-commercial, science-based, factual radio station afloat. It's WERU.org. I used to buy the pencil fish and take some home to lie, sir.